Hey everybody, it's Richard. I just uh, popped in ahead of time to say this episode is one of two with Frank B, where we really go in-depth to talk about dice control. Um, we are currently recording our shows on Skype, and Frank's internet connection was not the greatest, so there is some some periods where he robots a little because of his internet connection. So hopefully we will be getting back into the studio soon and be able to improve some of our audio. Anyway, here's today's show. Good afternoon. Welcome to Gambling with an Edge. I'm Bob Dancer. And I'm Richard Munchkin. Our guest today is Frank B., a sports better, but today he's going to be talking primarily about dice control. He's done extensive research on this. Uh, Frank B., welcome to Gambling with an Edge. Hey there, guys. Before we get to dice control, uh, you have had an enduring relationship with Mattress Mac on betting various sporting events as a hedge against things he sells in his store. So the Kentucky Derby was this last weekend. Um did you have anything with Mattress Mac? Uh, yeah, Mac was definitely in action. If anybody who watched the Derby, you uh, saw him uh, a number of times on the NBC broadcast. As the, that was part of the deal that he had made with Churchill Downs uh, in exchange for betting uh, a specified amount into their pool, not going somewhere else to do it. So he, had, he was obligated to bet $2 million on Saturday, which he did. That and a little more. Um, how it turned out was that uh, well, he lost uh, the 2.4 that he bet. That's because uh, he was betting on the favorite because that's the horse he gave his customers in the store in their promotion. Now, once he announced this, he says the sales took off just like it did for the Super Bowl. If you guys remember back then, he did something very similar for the Super Bowl, uh, gave, the, gave the people of Tampa Bay, uh, went and bet a whole bunch on Tampa Bay, but... In, in that case, he didn't quite bet enough. He did okay, but they, in his words, they beat the door down uh, to take part in this. And uh, I hear something similar happen with the Derby. Um, the bottom line is that uh, nobody's getting furniture free this time. Mac had to pay for his insurance, and that price was uh, the amount that he bet into the Churchill pool, less the rebate they gave him, and also whatever it is that you value, all the promotion. Uh, exposure he got on NBC and in the news and everything. And he puts a pretty high number on that. So, you know, the actual bottom line monetarily only was that he would have done a little better had that horse won. But then when you factor in all those other things, I think he's, I think he's pretty happy with the way things went. So, uh, yep, he did the Derby. Uh, and now we are considering what to do for the final two races that hasn't been uh, determined yet. Well, the Preakness is only two weeks away, or two weeks after the Derby, so it doesn't give a lot of time to sell a lot of furniture, if that's the deal. Well, this last one was about 10 days out that he got going with it, maybe 10 or 12 days out. And this will be the same thing. If he's going to do something, it'll be in the next day or two, he'll announce it. And they, and they really, uh, the sales, according to him, really ramp up as the race approaches, and race day is the biggest day, so um, he's got plenty of time. What about, um, I mean, you put two, $2.4 into a pool on a horse, it's going to crush the price of the horse. Uh, 
So you would what, think so. What did the um, what did the final price go? What did the horse go off at? Well, he, here's the interesting thing. I mean, you you and I both know guys that will not let those prices get out of line because they're going to straighten them out. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, so that's what happened. And uh, we consulted with some of those guys, and they said, just bet early, okay, because this, this benefits everybody. It benefits Churchill. It benefits us. And uh, we're going to straighten the price out because we're not going to let those other horses become undervalued, I mean overvalued, and uh, uh, we're, we're, we're going to balance things out. And that's what happened. And I'll tell you what, the morning line was 5-2 to two on Essential Quality, and it closed 3-1, to one, which shows you what the marketplace thought of what was out there available for the other horses. They really sent it in on the other horses in that last hour. Huh. And a, a long shot ended up winning. And um, But that's what happens sometimes. There's, when there's what 19, happens when there's... Exactly. When there's 19 or 20 horses in the race, it's a, um, it's a crap shoot. Speaking of which, uh, you were on this show seven or eight years ago talking about your dice control experiments. Um, let's revisit that. Um, How did you get into dice control and why now? Okay, well, why now is, um, you know, this, this dice thing, dice influence, dice control, whatever you want to call it, it seems to resurface every few years. Um, usually, that's uh, a result of um, one of those TV shows. There's a couple of uh, hour-long specials that were made back then. Uh, I think Travel Channel and um, maybe Discovery. Uh, and, and though after those errors, you seem to get a lot of questions online. I, I don't know what happened recently, but I started getting you know, messages from guys I know, hey, do you still do the dice thing, that kind of thing? I know Richard and both Richard and myself were asked by uh, the guys on, the, on a show that we go on periodically, Follow the Money. They were asking us about it. So something is out there right now where this is um, experiencing a resurgence in, in interest and seems like a good time to just go over the whole thing because there are a lot of myths that need debunking. And a lot of misinformation out there that, uh, um, if corrected, could probably save guys a lot of time and energy, like going down the wrong. I mean, the dice control rabbit hole is a a deep one, and you can get lost down there for a real long time if you don't know what you're doing. So, you know, maybe clear up some of the misconceptions about the subject. Okay. So how would you get started with dice control? How we got started was, um, I say we, because I, the project that we eventually got involved with, I had two other blackjack pros and I collaborated on it. Um, back uh, uh, in the days of BJ21, Stanford Wong um, just came out one day and started talking about dice control and how that he was possibly a believer in it. And he had some evidence that was compelling. And... Uh, Discussions ensued, and of course, debates also, and uh, basically guys that you would label math guys were 
arguing that this is not really possible and you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. And Stanford would counter with, well, I think that there's something to it and I'm willing to investigate and I'm even willing to uh, wager a little money on it. If, uh, so what resulted was they put together a challenge and Wong had this guy that was going to be his shooter. And the guys on the other side of the bet um, wanted didn't want to just gamble that he could do better than average, which would be roll one seven per uh, every six rolls. They wanted a little buffer, a little handicap, which they were given. So the bet was uh, that this guy would throw X number of rolls. I can't remember what it is, two, three hundred, something like that, at a table, uh, an agreed upon table, which ended up being at the Golden Nugget. And each side would have representatives there to track the rolls and the results. Um, I was one that was uh, asked to be there to track this thing uh, for one of the betters, which is a guy we, we all know, the professor. He helps us with the Mac thing. You know, Kim Lee. Yeah. And then um, the other guy was uh, King Yao was, was another guy on the other side of that. So you had some really smart guys betting against Wong. Uh, you know, definitely hardcore math guys. And um, so the challenge takes place. And um, to get right to it, Wong won. This guy. So wait, I, uh, before we get to that, um, did the Golden Nugget, how did, how were they reacting to this? I mean, because I'm, I'm assuming, you know, you wanted one guy just to be able to keep rolling the dice and you're all there writing down numbers. I mean, what did they think of this? Well, you know, if you ever hang out in a craft pit, especially like in Atlantic City, you'll, you'll see guys with pads there, right? You know, taking notes, just like you see them at the roulette table, you see them at the Bach table, you know, for whatever reason. And the people in the pit, they understand it all. To them, it, it will amount to nothing. Go ahead, take notes, keep tally of this and that. So they didn't seem to care. Uh, the one thing that they might have objected to was the fact that um, when it came time to shoot, everybody at the table had agreed to just pass the dice around to the to the same guy you know like i declined to shoot i declined to, I, so just to speak the otherwise we'd have been there for a week trying to get 300 rolls in so um they didn't seem to object and uh, it, it actually went off without a hitch it just took a long time i remember i remember that because i because i was there representing kim uh, you know steve and i had to stay there for the whole thing and track uh, all i think 300 rolls it was that's not a really huge sample exactly and, and that's why when, when the end result was that the dice guys, I guess you would say, they won the bet and the math guys lost, well, the math guys know how to accept that one. They, they had it all figured out. Well, we have a 38% chance of losing this bet with the point spread. No big deal, but 62% at even money is pretty good. You know, um, so, but, so they knew how to handle it. But the other guys, they thought that this, I mean, this was confirmation bias to the nth degree. They were like, oh, see? We won, the smart guys, the math geeks lost, and then that got the ball rolling. Now they had ammunition to, um, to further all their side ventures, all their seminars, their lessons, their books, their websites. These things started to pop up, and I truly believe that had it gone the other way, this would never be, have been an issue going forward. But because it, it came, when it came out the way it did – I think those guys who made, I think they owe Wong royalties because if it weren't for that, you know, 
uh, they would have never had the businesses, these little cottage industries that, that they all uh, participated in. I don't think any of that would have ever happened. Hmm. I don't know. So, I think I think other people would have tried to take advantage of it. You know, you wait a few years because the same kind of thing. Remember how every few years some guy would show up uh, on BJ21 trying to sell blackjack computers, you know, and and immediately everybody would jump on him and say these are illegal and you'll go to jail and all, you know, but uh, but it would keep popping up and. Uh... Right. There's a cycle. There's a cycle to it now. But, you know, that that that, it, that was clearly the the most popular time for this. I mean, you. It didn't take long before you could you would walk around a casino, walk through a pit, and you would see inevitably someone at one table in the pit was you could say, oh, look at that guy's trying to do it. That guy's trying to do that. You don't see it nearly as much these days. But during that year or so, the, you saw a whole lot of it. And it wasn't just, you know, recreational guys. It was a nice word. It was AP. A lot of APs were trying to hand it. I mean, didn't Shaq try it? Was, was he experimenting with it? I'm pretty sure he was, and a lot of other guys that I know. Uh, Shaq bet against uh, Wong in the initial challenge. It happened that 2,000 of his bet was against me, and so I won that first bet. Shaq paid off um, not happily. He was convinced he was on the right side of it. There was a second version of the Wong challenge, which the other side won, and I was clever enough not to be involved in that one, for which I'm grateful. But I uh, so so when we say the math guys were on the one side, it's Jack's another one. You know, he was on he was he was lined up with Yao and the professor and all those guys that first time. So um, when you did it, did you pay for lessons? Okay, so the way uh, once this thing started to gain steam and we decided that there were three of us that we were going to give it a shot to try to examine this, um, we said, okay, first thing first. We see what these guys practice on, what they train on, and they're basically little wooden cutouts, balsa wood cutouts, that are supposed to represent a cross-section of a craps table. And they have to measure things out. They have to stand this far, the height. There's no rail. All I mean, it, it, it seemed very, uh, very hokey. Amateur. If we're going to do this, we need, yeah, we need real equipment. We need everything to be as real. So... I got a real crap table. I mean, I mean, real crap table. I went to one of those uh, uh, places on industrial that does that they um, make gaming supplies, and, I, and uh, they just so happened to be making crap tables. A big project. The guy took me into the warehouse and they showed me. He goes, "These here we're making for the win. I, I'm making a dozen of them." I said, "Okay, how about you make 13 of them, and I'll take one." And he's like, okay, you know, he told me the price. It was acceptable. He goes, hey, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, though. Because I told him what I wanted to do. I just wanted from my house for experimenting. He didn't believe it. He goes, I'm going to cut it in half. It'll come apart. It'll, you can unscrew these, uh, the bottom of the legs. You'll be able to take it up and down stairs and warehouse. Because he thought I was going to run an illegal game. That's what he <laughs> thought I was really up to. <laughs> I'm like, no, don't. I go, that sounds great. Because for moving it, which will, hap- will, will happen, it'll be great. But that's not what's going on here. But uh, that was what we did. We got a, a real craps table, and then I had to rent a place. I was in the market to move anyway, so I, when I selected where I was going to move to, the primary consideration was, is there a room 
that will accommodate the craps table with plenty of room all the way around where we can put our equipment, the computers and all that stuff. And uh, I definitely I found a place, set it up, and the first thing you, op- you saw when you opened the door, the front door, was a craps table. It became known as the dice house to a lot of the guys because we would have drop-ins all the time. Guys, APs would stop in. They would want to shoot on the table and do a little practice. But, uh, yeah, so we got a, a dedicated place, a dedicated table, and then one of the guys is a computer programmer. He wrote a a pretty good, at first, uh, dice tracking program. And that one went underwent a number of revisions. So uh, with all that, we, we, we thought we were set equipment-wise to go. Uh, as far as – go on. When you were um, practicing, did you have someone to enter the data for you so you didn't have to – Make a throw, write it down, make it uh, or enter it in the computer. I mean, did you have help entering the data? Um, we sometimes another one of us would be at the other end, making sure that you that you called out the number right. But what would happen is you, your position for everybody was stick left one, which was mean because we're all right handed and we're all going to be to the left of the stick man, the first position, which gives you the closest shot to the wall. We also selected a table that is, I would say, the de facto standard in size for casinos. I would say 75 to 80 percent tables are 12-footers. So we weren't going to go and get a long table and not go get a short table, even though a short throw theoretically sounds like it would be easier. Uh, we, we, we got a 12-foot table. And what we would do, where we'd be standing, the laptop would sit to the left of us, to the shooter, and he would throw the dice, and then he would just turn and punch it into the computer. The program was on. So he would just put it in himself, throw. That was the fastest way to go about it. So that's how we went about recording rolls. And the target was if everybody could get 200 rolls in a day. It takes longer than you think. But uh, that, that was the way we were uh, accumulating the data. So 200 rolls a day, and how many rolls did you ultimately do? My sample, ultimately, talking close to a year of this, um, and it, it, there, there was a breakdown to it. Um, the, the initial version of the program was just recording roles, and it was segregating them left eye, right eye, because we needed to know that. But it didn't have a, a, a key component uh, added yet, which was to grade the throw, which helped immensely. We'll cover that later. But... Um, the the, uh, the collection of the data improved as time went by, and uh, the, because he kept, he kept making uh, tweaks to the program. So uh, yeah, it, it, it took a long time, and then eventually it had splintered off because we discovered about a month into it that there were two sizes of dice. Okay, and you think it doesn't make a big difference, like I, I, just like eighty percent of the tables are the same size. I'd say closer to 90% of the dice in use are the same size. They're standard. Now, the other 10 or 12% or whatever it was were actually bigger, okay? They were a little bit. You set them next to each other, you could see this one's bigger than that one. Now, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, but when we first started considering whether we even changed, we said, well, doesn't, does it sound popular? It, sounds, it doesn't sound really all that popular, uh, and so... You know, what I always like to do when I have a gambling question that is difficult to comprehend, I like to take 
an important aspect of it and take it to the extreme. And in this case, you know, you're wondering whether you control these dice. Say, well, what if the dice were as big as like a soccer ball? Do you think that you could then throw them down there in a manner that you could control to some degree the outcome? I think we all agree the answer would be yes. <laughs> and then now what if they were as big as a softball? You know, uh, the point is, it's possible to control the dice, you know, in, in that broad, given that broad range. But at what point is do the dice become small that your ability dissipates and then that it evaporates? You know, we didn't know that. But uh, we did know that it made a difference. We thought it would make a difference using these bigger dice. And we started collecting a separate sample from, you know, it, it, they all fed into the main sample, but we could split it off. These We were using the big dice here. And it did turn out that it did make a difference, just those, those little bigger. And so in time, when it came time to play, we did gravitate towards those places that were using the bigger dice. And Didn't avoid what, the other places. What, uh, what was your um, intent regarding hitting the wall? Was the idea right. to hit the wall or to land just short of the wall? Okay. So... <clears throat> When it comes to hitting the wall, the, the, there's a lot of people that will say, well, all the guys that do it, they, they're trying not to hit the wall. Um, that was not our objective. Our objective was to hit the wall, put it this way, as often as possible and necessary. But the throw, the throw that we eventually settled on, and when I say the throw, I'm talking about, you know, you got to decide, where is it that you want to first strike the felt? How far from the wall? And then even more so, what is the trajectory, the arc that you want to uh, be able to accomplish? And it turns out that that's real important because that, that would allow you to get closer, a, a nice looping arc, sort of, um, you know, sort of like you ever do the peach basket and the softball thing at the carnival? You know what I'm talking about? You try to throw a, a, a soft, yeah. yeah, sort of a nice soft toss where it sort of just goes plop. Um, that's sort of the type of throw that we decided would be optimal. And that throw would allow us to strike the felt uh, closer to the wall than what was being advocated by all the experts out there. Because all of them, including Wong, were advocating that you first strike the felt six to ten inches from the wall. Um, we had settled on more in the neighborhood of uh, three to four inches from the wall. And that's a much harder throw to make because you're, when you're off and you're aiming six to ten inches from the wall, eh, you might not notice it that much. But if you're off and you're aiming three inches from the wall, you're going to bang the wall sometimes on the fly, things like that. And it's obvious that you're off. So it's a tougher throw to make, but we found that if you could do it, and again, there's a whole lot more to it than, you know, especially the surface of the table that you're that you're playing on, you want it to be dead down there, but you found that you get a lot of throws that would sort of just plop and sort of like huddle right up against the wall. Technically, it's hitting the wall. It looks like it hit the wall. It's hard to tell if it didn't hit the wall, um, but that was the throw that we ended up uh, settling on and everybody was trying to achieve. Now, it was different for sure than what the vast majority of guys who throw dice, they, they were satisfied doing it further from the wall, but this is, the, this is what we settled on. So the idea is the dice would hit three inches from the wall 
and then the momentum would carry them forward and they would just sort of kiss the wall? Is that yeah, right? On a, on a good throw. Now, this is where the grading system eventually came in because what you can control 100% is where the dice first strike. What you can't control is what happens after that. Sometimes they go exactly as you hoped and they sort of like tumble right into the wall and sort of settle right there within a few inches. And sometimes they don't. They land on a corner, they hit something, boom, they go all, you know, they go all over the place. It's the percentage of time that you can get dice post-strike to sort of huddle right around the strike zone. This was the basis for our grading system, our eventual grading system, which was very important because it allowed us to not only take a look at the shooter and see his, not only can he hit a mark, but how much activity uh, occurs after he hits his mark. But, you know, what are the results for the various grades? When you get off a good throw, we could segregate that in the program. Okay, these are all the good throws. How did all the good throws do? That became very important down the road because once we'd be able to sort them out, we go, wow, there were times we go, wow, look how much better our results are when we get off a throw that hits the mark and then has minimal activity after a first strike. Okay, so obviously some tables are going to be better for this than other tables. So even when you get good, there's going to be some places you can play and some you can't play. How did you grade tables? Okay, so the first thing to do is you, you, we, we, we got a, an idea of the range of tables that were out there. And we and we set we had we had we ended up with a pretty good table, you know. And it's not like it's just by chance. We can you can create the type of bounce that you want on the back end by what you put on the surface. Do you just lay the felt down? Do you lay the the felt on top of newspaper? Some places use uh, linoleum. Some places uh, use carpet padding. It just depends. We kept messing with the, with the surface initially until we got. A good bounce, but not a great bounce, okay? Because if we got a great bounce and we collect all this data on it, well, good luck going out there and finding a table that good, you know? We, wa we, wanted, to, we wanted to create uh, 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 an environment where, you know, probably better than two-thirds of the table out there, but not better than 80%, um, somewhere right in there. So we'd have some tables to choose from if this thing worked out. So uh, based on our table, we were then able to go out and grade the same shooter on other tables. And it didn't take a whole lot of data to do that. So we, like, if we knew what his strike percentage is, and when I say that, I'm referring to the type of grade he got. Like, we call it the highest grade. There's, there's two grades, grade on the throw, grade on the landing. If he got both were top-notch, there'd be an AA grade. So how many of those type of throws could he get off on whatever table it is that we were testing in a casino? And we see how he could compare there. It doesn't take long uh, for that particular exercise statistically to say, okay, this one's about in the same ballpark. This one's much better. It doesn't take a whole lot of throws for that. So you're saying, like, um, it, you're a shooter and on your home table, you get an AA grade X percent of the time, right? right. So when you then you'd go to the casino and and see if you were getting at the same percentage on that particular table and you could tell pretty quickly if you were 
matching your results at home. Is that right. correct? Like this table was as good or better. Like some tables were just a walk away. There was no – you go in there. It took three, three – oh, wait a minute. This is not going to work. I remember specifically going into the win one time. I go, okay, I'm going to go t- check their tables out. And I don't know. I think the guy in the pit knew me, you know, from other stuff in the past. Because I went up to the table, I threw it, and they bounced right off the table. They bounced right over the rail. Holy shit. Okay. I did it again, and they did, they're just bouncing like crazy. I, 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 I don't think I lasted five throws. I go to walk away. He comes up to me. He goes, hey, Frank, what do you think? Pretty bouncy, huh? I go, <laughs> I go yeah. <laughs> I, I come to learn later that they had some kind of real springy carpet foam under there because they just didn't want to bother with they, they didn't mind if you went in there and did it, but they didn't want to bother with worrying whether you were able to uh, that you were something to worry about. And the same thing uh, took place down at the D, or it was the Fitzgeralds back then. Um, you know, their table was ridiculous. You could make it bounce off every time. You know, and in fact, we did. We went in there. I go, watch this. I'm a, you want to bet I can make it bounce off five times in a row and hit right around the trip tree? Boom! <laughs> it was ridiculous. But that's the way it was. The tables vary that much from place to place. But and what you were looking for was something on the other end, where you threw them down there and they just did next just to died. nothing. Yeah. Right. And the, and the problem comes, you know, you, you know from blackjack, you know, uh, when you're out scouting for games and stuff, you you find a really good game and you grade it out to be this good. You don't say, well, today I think I'll go play at this lesser place. You know, just. Because I feel like, you know, I, I like the cocktail goes there. No, you're going to keep going back to the same game that's the be- give you the best possible conditions. And that's what ended up happening with this. There ended up being a handful of tables in town that I just we just kept going back to. So why would we go anywhere else? And, and what do basically you think your the edge was? of tables. What oh, do you think your um, edge was on those games? That's a whole different story. Okay, because... When it comes to evaluating at home, when you can collect a lot of data, enough data that it becomes statistically significant, you can say, well, if we were booking money here, this is what we would have made bet. And this, the program would tell you that. But trying to take that and transfer just all of that and just make that assumption that everything that's happening here is going to happen there the same way is, is a leap. Okay. So what we were doing, we, yes, we were grading tables. And we were betting money, no doubt about it, but we were hanging our hat not on some of the um, variance in results that we were seeing at home. We eventually zeroed in on one specific thing that we thought was as close to universal as possible. Um, so, so when we were collecting this data, so this 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 is a little involved, but it's worth it. There's when collecting data, we had you eventually had three big samples for the three shooters that were that were shooting, and each person's sample. When you look at the breakdown, it would give every combination, all the 36 combinations, the frequency, the left die frequency, the right die frequency, and we're going okay. We're all suppressing sevens to varying degrees, and the degrees were like I think the best guy was six seven nine. I was like six five something, and the other guy was six two something, and so that means for that means you were getting one seven out of six and a half rolls instead of one right. out of six, right? Right. 
Right. Okay. And that, and, and that, and, and I, w- I will admit that 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 number rose when we when when you when you segregated just the big dice, which we ended up calling clunkers, the clunker dice, the big, the oversized ones. That went up to like six, seven for me. But um, we would take a look at the all thirty-six combinations. Say, what's coming up? Well, this guy's rolling. He's definitely rolling more eights, for example. And this guy, well, he's definitely rolling more high numbers, but he's, you know. And these were things that were statistically significant, but they differed from each guy to each guy, except for one thing that was common. And that was the combination that occurred the least frequently. Now, that was, I noticed mine first. I go, well, you know. You know, I'm three point this. Uh, uh, the average combination should come up 2.79 percent of the time. I think it is. You know, it's just 30, 100 divided by 36. And I was on one com on my small dice. I was 2.11. I think it was. I'm going. Wow, this one's off. This is my lowest one, and it's off by way more than any other. You know, than the good ones are off. And I go interesting. And I looked at what it was, and it was the inside combination. It's a two, the, when you set the dice down, the set we, we all use the same set. It was the two die faces that were touching. Well, okay, that's kind of interesting. I guess if I had thought of that ahead of time, and I had to pick one, I guess that would have been it. Just because it seems that they would have to do, you know, completely opposite things. But uh, then I, the next guy goes, yeah, you know what? That, that's my least frequently occurring too. And then the third guy, who, who who was really only in the six-two something range. So he was creating the least effect, but his also, his least occurring combination of the 36 was this inside combination. I go, okay, I think we are, we might be onto something here, because think about it. Now, Richard, you do, uh, you dabble in roulette. If I asked you, what's the odds of a roulette dealer starting right now, the next three rolls, same three numbers? You know, how do you figure that out? And, you know, what, you know, in the ball, you know. Yeah. I, well, assuming that the first number could be anyone, then it's 38 right. squared after that. Right. And it's just that that's that was going to be my point. So when we looked at this, we go, wow, that's really seems like it's a rare event. How rare is it? And when we started to consider it, we said, well, we didn't name this combination ahead of time. So it could have, the first one we looked at could have been anything. But for the next two to match, it's 36 squared. Had we named it ahead of time, it would be 36 cubed, which is something in the 40,000 something to one range. But in this case, it was only, what, 36 times, is something around 1,300 to one, something like that. Sure. 1,296. Yeah, so, but once you've now named it, you can look at the next thousand rolls. And, right. you know, um, but just, so, but to me, what's interesting about that is uh, what just, what was the actual combination? What was the number? Well, it, it doesn't really matter because it's whatever you decide to put in the middle. Well, but okay, it, but what I'm getting yeah, at it, is um, it seems it, to me that this would be let, – let's just say, for example, that it was, you know, uh, 3-1. Well, it, I would think you would get a lot less heat if somebody is betting no 4 – than betting the do and rolling, you know, tons of 
it, it, you see what I mean? I'm just thinking about I mean, how to I get see the what money. You mean. It's exactly the thought process we have. I, I exactly see what you mean because that's what we did. Yeah, <laughs> that okay. Was exactly what, that was exactly what happened because the inside combination was a seven. It was a one six. It was a one on. It was a let's see. It was a one on the uh, six on the left, one on the right. And w- w- what we go? We go. Well, listen. There's six ways to make a, a, a seven. And, and let's say you're shaving off one third of the probability of one of those combinations. That's one eighteen. Now, if you just switch it to, in this case, which is exactly what we started doing, a four. You know, let's say you put two two in the middle, or one three in the middle. Now you only have what? There's three ways to make it. You got nine ways to make a three if you chop it in thirds, and you've lost. So now you're now you're shaving the probability by one ninth. It looks like you might have something there. Yeah. And that's exactly the route that we did. We started doing the no four thing and other, you know, just thinking, how can we use this? How can we use this reduction in the inside combination most efficiently? So that, that's that's the path we went down after a while. It took a while to come up for this to materialize because it takes a lot of throws to get to the point where you go, wow, look, it's, we got enough in. It's statistically significant. Look what we found. We so found that you- all these other ones. Would you have a BP betting a no four and the shooter betting small on the do? Yeah, yeah, that 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 was pretty much the, the plan. It wasn't the shooter was always you know, like and then and the shooter, uh, coincidentally, all of a sudden his bet size went way down because in, in t- typical BP fashion, he's just there. And it's, he, he's incidental with what's going on. Right. He, he's not he's not the better. So, yes, we definitely had the guy. We even went so far as to have the guy over there heckling the shooter. You know, because he wants to know a no number, and the shooter is trying to shoot us. We have, you know, they, they, you know, they would wave their hands. May the force be with you. You know, try, you know like goofing on the shooter because they appeared to be in a trance trying to do something. And uh, yeah, so we went down that entire. Your thought process was exactly like ours. So, All so right. now you so, mentioned so, that you. Let kept me interrupt you, go- Richard. Oh, okay. We need to do some commercials. I love this conversation, and, and we definitely need to talk about. A video which changed Frank's outlook, and so we're going to get to that right after we do the commercial break. The South Point has more than 10,000 gains, returning more than 99%. This is more than anyone else has. In May, the promotion is half-price gas and goods promotion. Earn and redeem $25 worth of points, which is earned by playing 8,334 in coin-in. And you receive a $50 gift card for Walmart or Chevron. Limit 10 cards per month in any combination. Assuming you value the gift cards at the same as cash, this means South Point is offering a 0.6% slot club for your first $83,340 in coin in. Sunday, May 9th, Mother's Day, earn 200 points between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. and receive a C's Sweet Bouquet 10 of 19 assorted chocolates. Keep your points. Limit one per player. The 10 retails for $24.50. On May 31st, Memorial Day, there will be a $32,000 hot seat giveaway where every three minutes between 8 a.m. and midnight, some players receive $100 in free play. Mondays are senior days for those of us at least 50 years old. Using... Your points, you get half-price dining, half-price bingo, and $4 movies. Blackjackapprenticeship.com is an excellent site for those who wish to be successful at counting cards at Blackjack. 
They will be having boot camps this summer. If you're interested, contact Colin Jones at colin at blackjackapprenticeship.com. Videopoker.com is the best place to play lots of games. If you sign up for the gold membership, $8.95 a month or $79.95 a year, this allows you to get correction on most games. The game of the week is 100 play with quick quads. Quick quads is a six coin per line game where you get quick quads, which are three of a kind accompanied by two other cards that add up to the rank of the trips, such as 99954 or 444-22. In my opinion, this game is much more fun to play than regular video poker. I've not seen a 100 play version in a decent pay schedule, but when I find it, you can bet I'm going to sit down and play. All right, we are back to Frank B. Now, Richard, you were asking a question when I rudely cut you off. Do you remember that question? Oh, yes, of, of course. So um, you mentioned that, of course, you kept going back to the best games, right? It's like same thing if you had a whole card. You're going to keep going back because um, that's where you're going to win the most money. And so what happened to, uh, in those casinos? Well, there were a couple that the Bellagio was one. They had that were really good. Okay, uh, but Paris had one that was it was the Babe Ruth of craps tables. I mean, it was unbelievable that you would get the dice down to the back end and they would just like get absorbed into the. It was unbelievable. We always theorized that there must be some kind of knot of wood down there, some soft knot of wood or something, because it, it, you know. Never found anything better than that. And I eventually started going there every afternoon when they opened that pit. I was there when they opened the table. Could we make this a $100 game? And they agreed to that every every day until the end. Um, and this is something that the Bellagio, which was the other place that was really good right across the street, they had two tables in their pit that were really good. But they wouldn't move the uh, the signs around because they go, oh, there's $100 games down at the end. They had $100 tables all the time. So I couldn't get that those tables to myself. So Paris became the Babe Ruth of the crafts tables. And I just I, I ended up going there every day, tried to be as nice as possible, polite. Everything. They even had a bet that was uh, uh, very, very good for tipping the dealers because you always want to keep them on your side. They had this thing called the fire bet. And basically, it's if you hit every number before sevening out, they get paid some kind of jackpot. It only cost, I forget, maybe it was five dollars I was betting for them. Didn't matter. The point is that's a great bet because it, it, it sat out there until you sevened out. It wasn't like betting something and they lost it. And they, got, they always had a bet out there. So I would go there every day and and play. And my results were decent. Okay, like I said, assuming that your that your result moved from the the practice house to the casino is a big assumption, and it would take a lot of data to establish that we were assuming that a lot of it would carry over. So I was doing okay. We were generating good, good offers there. In other words, I was getting that, because that, that was the objective. The objective was if we can just erase the house edge, we can make our money off marketing, just like machine guys do. And we eventually started getting treated just like the high-end machine players. I was getting $1,000 chips. I was getting invited to the big events, the tournaments and things like that. So as far as that realistic expectation of what we could get out of it, we were, we were starting to see the results. 
Um, but it, it, after a while, it started. I started to rub them the wrong way there, and they uh, wouldn't give me a hundred dollar sign one day. There's not enough tables open. We need this table. Okay, that that hurt right there. Then then there was an incident there where I had another. I had a big player playing next to me. He was betting five hundred dollar chips, and this guy liked to bet the don't. And before he did, he would he would like apologize to me. He's like, listen, I'm, this is nothing against. I go, I know. See, you don't have to explain to me. It has nothing to do with me. But he would bet the don't, and a number would be established. And this guy loved fours and tens. He also liked fives and nines. So what he didn't like was sixes and eights. So he'd have five hundred dollars on the pass line, and a six would come up. And as you guys know, in craps. The line bets, at least on the due side, those are contract bets. You have the advantage on the come-out rule. And the exchanges, you got to leave that thing up there after the guy because now we have the edge. And you flip that when you bet the don't. So this guy faded the, the, the come-out rule and then was taking down his bets on if it came up six or eight. So I watched this a couple of times. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> this is, I, go, I told the guy, I go, I go, what's the matter? You don't like you don't like sixes and eights. He goes, no, nah, nah. no. I go, I like sixes and eights. I go, I like them so much. I'll, I'll take your bet. You know, just leave it up there. I'll take the action. And we started doing this. He started, you know, instead of taking it down, he would just leave it there. And then if it won, he'd give it to me. And if it lost, I'd give him 500. Now, the pit noticed it right away, but didn't say anything. But you can tell they're sort of scratching. They go, wait a minute. I think this, I don't think this is working out well for us. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's been taking down these bets that have about $50. And I don't know what the EV was on a 500 chip, but it's pretty good. You know, six versus a seven. And they go, they eventually came around. They said, listen, they pulled me aside. Just like when you get at the blackjack table, you know, Kirk, could you please step away from the table? And they said, listen, you got, we don't, we don't want you doing that anymore. Leave that guy alone. I go, oh no, we, we were just being friendly, and he goes, "I don't, no more. You, you can't buy his bets anymore." I go, "Okay, understood." Because now, listen, I'm not going to start any trouble. I want to. This is my place. This is where I want the table. I want to play on. I'm not going to start any crap there. So I'm like, "Yeah, no problem, man." We were just, I just like sixes and eights, you know. You know. So, so the table didn't bounce this. I was like, "Wow, isn't that interesting?" So, um, listen, I could keep going on with stories of Bellagio and all these other things, you know, how this, how this disintegrated over time. Because I eventually got bounced out of Bellagio as well. I didn't get bounced out of Paris. It just became not worth going. But I got bounced out of Bellagio. I got bounced out of Venetian, Monte Carlo. Um, I want to say Golden Nugget, but that might not be right. They might have just made it real difficult. Sometimes they make it real difficult for you. And by difficult, I mean you were under threat of being uh, no longer able to play on something that was inevitably going to happen. And that would be most of the time hitting the wall. Now, anybody who throws the dice down there, whether they're, no matter what they're doing, occasionally the dice bet bounce cockeye and they both don't hit the wall. It, it happens to everybody. But if it happens to you and they're looking for a reason to get rid of you, you would start to get the warnings. Hey, you need to hit the wall every time. Say, okay, I'm trying, I'm doing it. But, you know, sometimes it would bounce side, you know, be a bad throw, whatever. 
and it would not hit the wall both dice. And then they would go when they eventually got to the point where they said, listen, the next time you miss the wall, you're done. You know, when they start telling you things like that, a you got to pick up and go because you're inevitably going to miss the wall by accident. And B, that, that's your signal that it's time to leave that place. So that, that, that was the type of stuff that started to happen. Did they ever put you together with the BP? And, and had you taken a substantial amount of money out of those places? No, we, ne- we never caught problems for, for doing the BP thing because, I mean, we, we didn't show up at those places at the same time. The, the, we were playing different places. It would look really weird we both showed up at Paris or Bellagio or one or two of the other places that we were picking on Hard Rock. Um, so we went to different places that had acceptable tables. We were, we, you know, we, because when we went to, to play at the um, at Paris, we were betting the money ourselves. We played at um, Bellagio, we're betting the money ourselves. You know, we're just betting on ourselves. This is something that evolved near the end. We said, listen, we we need to come up with a different way to do this, not only here, but if we decide to go somewhere else. But you know, you know, you know, you know the moral to a lot of this is that. No matter what you're doing and no matter how much the pit or the casino doesn't want to believe what might be going on, you're going to you're going to get countermeasures if they think it's even possible. But did you ever get countermeasured if it was a BP betting the don't? No, no. Yeah. Wow. So you might have been able to make a lot more money if you had started in that way. We didn't really make this. We didn't make a lot of money because, you know, we're first we're betting green chips, then individual, you know, we're, we're going, we're finding a good table, betting black chips. I think I made a little north of 30,000 mine. The other guys, listen, they would go out on their own and play too. So I, I can't testify as to what they made. You know, one guy bet bigger than me and he had, he would come home and have, you know, five figure swings a lot of days. And so I don't know what his bottom line was. I just know what mine was. And, um, you know, it, it varied. And, and that was the big problem with this. You never know if you're right. You never know if what you're doing is actually making a difference, even though at home you, you feel cute there. We're running out of time today, but we have a lot more questions to ask you. Any chance we can get you to come back in the near future? And continue yeah, this discussion. No problem. Perfect. Yep, no problem. Now, when you were here with Anthony Curtis on a Super Bowl prop bet, you talked about Mexican casinos that had this huge four point something percent on the buy in and nine percent on the daily net. Is that still going on? That sounds terrible. Yeah, it does sound terrible. And, uh, like we all speculated back then, you know, did, you know, what's the saying? You don't want to slaughter the cow. You want to milk it, I guess. <laughs> and they, th- those rates were going to slaughter the cows. Um, and that's what ended up happening because about a month ago, um, unbeknownst to me, I just checked periodically. I, I, I think it happened about a month or five or maybe six weeks ago. They, uh, I went and I just asked. I don't know what possessed me to ask. You know, what's the uh, tax on the uh, um, in the in the table room? And they said, oh, no more, no more tax. I go, no, because the machines were still 4.4 percent on your buy-in, and then 9 percent 
on your daily net win if you cashed out at the end of the day. Now, if you, were, if you weren't too bright and you start cashing out multiple times during the day, well, that made the tax effectively. It's going to be higher because you're going to be cashing out winners and then missing losers. But it, it remained the same on machines, but you told me it's 0% on your buy-in. No good. And it's 1% on your daily net win. Okay. You know, two things. One, people will start coming back to the tables because what had happened, I would peek, take a peek into the table games room. Nobody would be there. It'd be empty. The only thing that had anything going was they had a poker room, and those they had nightly tournaments. They were they were getting action there, because obviously that didn't apply there. Um, but the pit was empty, and the people were starving. I'm sure they laid off dealers and everything. So uh, yeah, they had to uh, switch to something more reasonable, which you know validates what I speculated, which was that this was not state mandated. This is this is the casino trying to pass on the tax. To the consumer because they got a little bump i heard at the end of at the end of 2020 they they're taxing them a little more so the, so they changed the tax it previously was seven percent of your net win nothing on the buy-in so and i've checked around i found a place uh the other day was uh no no tax on the buy-in no tax on the win just nothing in the table game area you're cool you're good to go you can play there you know so um it changes all the time they try to take as much as, as, as they possibly can without uh uh, it, having it turn into some big negative. But, yeah, it definitely changed like we thought it would. All right. Thank you, Frank. Um, at the end of our shows, we do a recommended section. Richard, do you have anything for us today? Yeah. Um, so I did something I haven't done in over a year um, this weekend. I actually went out to eat at a restaurant with my wife and son and his girlfriend. It was her birthday. Um, and we tried a place in Summerlin called Honey Salt, and uh, the food was really, really good. They had outdoor seating as well as indoor. Uh, as I said, the food was really good. The service, uh, not so much, but, you know, I, I give every place, uh, you know, one pass on the service because, uh, you know, every place can have a bad, an off day. But I, I would definitely still recommend it because, as I say, the food was so good, so. Honey Salt, it's called. It's in Summerlin. You live nowhere close to Summerlin. How would you happen to end up there? Well, uh, so there was, um, in addition to uh, going to eat, we also there was an art walk at Tivoli Village, and um, the art walk was terrible. It was like, you know, ten artists with, you know, paintings of cats or something. I mean, the art walk was no good at all. So, But we went out there to, you know, go eat and get out doors and um, yeah so all right for my recommended I want to tell you about a series of YouTube videos by Mishishiti Kagiyama who for some reason everybody calls him Michi and he calls it I kept talking about my match Michi is one of the top players in the world in backgammon and he plays a series of matches, usually 11 or 13 points, and he comments on each roll as they happen. English is not his first language, and he does have some amusing expressions. But the key is uh, you think, learn to think about the backgammon game in a way an expert players does. Um, unlike XG++, which is the best way computer-wise it'll tell you how much each play is worth and what all the variations are 
this tells you why. In other words, and it's a uh, it's a different way to learn, and I find it interesting. I'm never going to take up backgammon professionally again, but I do find it enjoyable. Frank, do you have a recommended for us? Um, I I have something that uh, I've I've grown fond of over the last few months. Uh, it's it came as a recommendation from my friend uh, Captain Jack, who uh, um, is you know, heavily into sports betting. And uh, I, where, I, where I'm at half the year, when I'm watching my sporting events, they're in a different language. So this app, it is called, uh, that he recommended, is called Tunity. T-U-N-I-T-Y. It's available in both of the app stores. And what you do is you take it and you turn the channel on what it is that you want to hear the audio broadcast to, or you do it in the sports book. You know, you point, you can point it at the screen, and somehow, just like a, a barcode scanner, it, it takes the the image on the screen, knows what it is that you're watching, and then gives you a selection of audio feeds to listen to. You can listen to the direct CBS feed, like when I was watching NFL um, during the winter, or like NBA games, which are broadcast in you know, right now for me Spanish. And you put it, and then all of a sudden, I can get the, the English feed. I can get it right through my TV. It's in, uh, I, because I can uh, uh, play the uh, sound through a speaker, or you can just plug it into a headphone that you're using with your iPhone. And uh, it's called Tunity, T-U-N-I-T-Y. I don't know who makes it. It costs, it costs a, you can, there's a free version where you got to put up with ads. Like every five minutes, it's going to interrupt you with an ad, and you got to push it to, to put it away. But if you pay a few bucks a month, you don't get those ads. And I did find that the iPad version of it, um, for some reason, the free version on there, I never got ads. So maybe, maybe that's a little quirk. But uh, anyway, it's a, it's, it's a pretty good app. Even if you're not dealing with a language barrier, even if you're just sitting in a sports book and you want to get the audio feed because, you know, maybe they have a different game on it. You just can't. They got music on like they have at the, at the Circa all the time. You know, this, this app called Tunity will let you uh, just, just aim it at the screen that you're watching and you'll be able to listen to it. Uh, the audio feed. Oh, that's a great idea, whoever came up with that. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Frank. Informative as ever. Thank you, Richard. Go out and hit lots of royal flushes, everybody. Good day. <laughs>